Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am your host, Mary Catherine Ham. My co-host, Vic Mattis, is out for the week, but I have... I mean, Vic can never really be replaced, but I have a very experienced, sometimes profane podcast host with me. It's outrageous. <laughs> to, to, to take his spot for today, Josh Holmes, uh, a... An experienced and illustrious podcast host of none other than the Ruthless Podcast, one of my favorites. If there is a member of the Getting Hammered audience that does not listen to that podcast, which I kind of doubt, then <laughs> you should listen to it. How's it going, Josh? Oh, man, I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to be here. Nice to finally get invited, frankly. Oh, my gosh. I know. I've been really delinquent. <laughs> Tell us where you are today, Josh. I know you're doing workout on the trail various places. Yeah, I just got back. I'm actually in DC in my office, clearing the decks on a bunch of things. But you know, it's that time of year, Mary Catherine. It's this is like the, you know, where the rubber meets the road. So we're out trying to do as much as we possibly can to get some folks elected here. Very nice. In the past like 48 hours, I've heard a couple things. I've heard that schools didn't really close, just school buildings closed. <laughs> I've heard that that you know inflation isn't really something that you should worry about because the threat to democracy is so much more that's right present and real. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you th oh oh and the, the crime is also not something you should worry about. You shouldn't um, worry about any of those things. Yeah. That's yeah right. What what do you make of the closing argument from our friends of the left? Well, you know what, what does that tell us about where we're headed? You know what's pretty bad, right? When they they've formulated an entire pitch based on abortion essentially and then january 6th right the january 6th one is has come wrapped around full almost almost two years at this point and then you know obviously the post dobbs decision has been all abortion and then you know like lo and behold you find out somewhere in the middle of september and it turns out like people are pretty concerned about the fact they can't afford groceries right and the quality of life in this country isn't what it needs to be both in terms of an inflation standpoint crime, very serious issue, drugs rampant throughout commu communities as a result of open border policies. And like all of these things are actually, you know, problems that they haven't even discussed. In fact, in, in, in the border in particular, they say it doesn't exist. Like there is no border security yeah. problem. So like, I guess what the closing argument, as you just alluded to, is not those things. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, it's not that we have a message to address inflation. You know, of course, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which was inevitably going to increase inflation. So we named it an Orwellian name. But like, the plan is no plan. The plan is not what they're saying. There's the, 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 what they're saying is, is not what you should be focused on. Right. Which I don't know. In 20 years of doing this, it feels like it's a little less than captivating. Yeah. Well, we're two weeks out. And it seems futile to tell the voters the things you very obviously care about are not correct. And right. I know I know we've spent two years trying to tell you you care about the other things, <laughs> says the media, but you didn't come along for the ride. And so I guess we'll just like yell louder. <laughs> That's it. That appears to be it. And what's so amazing is how incredulous some of these people are about the fact that their, you know, their single message didn't work. And one of the things I love about election cycles, having done this for, you know, on the operative level for as long as I have, is you get a whole bunch of people who know absolutely nothing about elections telling you throughout the summer how elections work, 
right? Yes. And then like you figure out again in the fall that maybe it's the case that if you run one campaign for five months on a single issue, it doesn't rank in the top five of priorities for Americans. Like the uptake's not going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you guys had been listening to the Ruthless podcast, you would have had your fears quelled in August when, when the big comeback was happening for Democrats. But it turned out that that did not come to pass. And Josh was saying the whole time due to his operative history, this is, this is a moment, but it's not going to last. First of all, tell me a little bit about why that why you knew that moment wasn't going to last. And then I'd love to hear a little bit about what your career has been like, why, how you started in politics and why. Sure. Well, so look, I've worn these shoes on both feet, right? In cycles that have been very favorable to us from the political environment standpoint and cycles that have been just awful, right? And you, you take away certain things from it. You know, it always, for me, it's always more indelible when something is going wrong because you remember it like it was yesterday and, uh, you know, you gloss over all the things when things go right. But, you know, I remember like 2006, for example, was a year where in the middle of August, Republicans were like, you know what, maybe we won't get wiped out, right? The polling kind of did this, this sort of uptick and all of these races, all of a sudden, all the incumbent Republicans sort of had this edge. And, you know, I thought, you know, maybe there's a chance. And I was fairly young in my career. I was like, yeah, maybe this is going to happen. And like September happened and then everything just went south and the environment caught up with the rest of the ballots in all of these various states. And what happens during midterms that's more profound than presidential elections is it has a lower information flow, right? You don't really get into it until later on in the cycle. Consequently, all of your concerns about the direction of the country and how you feel like the president is doing and the party in power is doing as it relates to your own economic situation or security situation doesn't really get translated to the ballot choice that you have in your own state, whether it's governor, Congress, Senate, what have you, until that choice is sort of put before you in the fall campaign. And so inevitably what happens, and we, I watched us go the other side in 2014, where we're losing seven of seven targeted Senate races in August of that year, and then ended up winning 10 in November, is much like this year, there's this fool's gold out there that's like, you know, I recognize this name in a polling question, so I'm good with that. But then all of a sudden you see everybody start to apply their own situation to the ballot question at hand, beginning in about Labor Day and escalating into October and throughout the, the election year. And that's what's happened, right? It doesn't mean that all Republicans are going to win. It just means whatever that you thought the environment looked like in August, ain't it? Yeah. Well, and to me, this is compounded by <clears throat> the fact that during August and during the summer, you hear nothing but all about the bad candidate candidate quality of the Republican Party, right? That's that's all you yeah. hear about. Right. For instance, you hear all the stories about Carrie Lake, none about any of the possible weaknesses of, say, Katie Hobbs, right? You don't <laughs> right. you don't hear that, but eventually voters will face some of the weak points of the opponent, right? They yeah. have not been introduced to this person until late in the game. And so it's sort of exaggerated at that point. I mean, the Warnock Walker debate matchup is a perfect example where you know, I would have assumed Warnock would have performed better in that venue. He yep. wasn't that great, I think, partly because he doesn't get a lot of tough questions on the trail. 
And it's like, he thought he was going to have an easy night. And people got permission to vote for Herschel Walker. And they looked at Warnock and thought, well, that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> right. Well, I think that one of the other things that Democrats suffer under and, you know, suffers in quotes, but this, this information flow is they're in a cylinder all of their own making, right? Increasingly so in the last three or four election cycles, mainstream media, corporate media has become sort of a house organ of the democratic talking points. And so they build this insulation around them where, you know, they're flipping on every channel and they're like, yeah, look, this is right. This is exactly what we said it was. And then they're reading the newspaper and it sort of spits back out all the opposition research that they've conducted on Republican candidates and like no liabilities of their own. And so I think that they have a false sense of reality more often than they don't about where the electorate itself is on a whole range of issues, including just how they feel about their candidates. Yeah. They're like, they're like you know what would work? Let's have a trans activist come to the White House. Yeah, two weeks left. And ask Perfect. With two, again, closing argument. Hear me out. We'll talk about minor medical interventions, medical inter interventions for trans minors. That's, I think yeah. that's on everyone's mind, top yeah. of mind. I, I was uh, trying, I was trying to figure out how the state would, would, you know, basically take on the role of doing sex changes on minors. You know, never mind my grocery bill and the fact that, it, you know, I can't afford a gallon of gas anymore. This is really top of mind. Right? Yeah, top I mean, of mind. Uh, by, the, by the way, Josh is, Josh is one of the, the proud, the few who I could look at on a, on a panel during my years at CNN and, uh, and go, oh my gosh, they put someone on with me who I might actually agree with. You have no idea how wonderful it was to have a friendly face on those panels. My God, I, I felt like by the time I was done doing CNN, I remember being like four to one. The other, the other Republican was like Bill Crystal, And I remember thinking, man, this is not good. This is, this is just not good. <laughs> like, you know, I, it was comforting to have you there because occasionally, you know, it's nice to have somebody else looked at like they have a third eyeball right. while, you know, we're in there, we're in it together. That's right. And like, really, really, I'm just, I'm, I attempt to bring to the table just a, just a little bit of exposure to what the actual people are thinking as opposed to the, the bubble we've put ourselves in. It doesn't always it doesn't, it doesn't always, always take, you know, and then, then you get shouted no. down on Twitter and everything else for daring to express an opinion that doesn't follow conventional wisdom. But, you know, the thing that I've always loved about the way you handle yourself on those is you always do it with smile. You always do it with good humor. And that is a skill, MK. That is a Thank skill you. because I got to tell you, <laughs> it ain't easy going in there with good humor. Well, I attempt to, and it's, you know, it's made me it's made me very prepared to defend myself should I need to. <laughs> you do it well. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about this argument, too, that, that look, elections uh, or democracy is at stake here, which is something we hear in a, every election. A midterm, it's like, OK, you're laying it on a little sick. We're in a midterm. But democracy itself is at stake. Max Boot makes the argument in The Washington Post that if you My elect God. some of these people, it's just the it's just autocracy is next. If free people get in the booth and do the things I don't like, that turns out badly. And it's really, look, to me, I'm like, look, I, I don't like election deniers, right? Right, right. That's why I didn't love Stacey Abrams and have said it many times on CNN, sometimes to people's dismay. Yeah. But if you don't deal with both forms, yeah. then you're not really concerned about election denying. 
That's oh, totally right. I mean, first of all, I do find it interesting that the, the only time anybody's ever concerned about the execution of our democracy is when a Republican wins, right? I mean, yeah. like Max Booth thing is a special, special logic in that if you participate in the democratic process that elects somebody I don't like, it is the end of democracy. It's just like, wow, I mean, you really got to work to get there. But he did it. He did it. The other thing is, as you mentioned, look, I'm in, I'm in the same boat with you. I think one of the most contemptible things you can do in a democracy is fail to concede an obviously lost race. Right. Right. I, I think it's our, our system is work. It works as well as it has because of a transition of power and because of an understanding that, you know, you, you're not going to win everything all of the time. And, and attitudes in this country change and the American people's voice is up. You know, it happens to be whether you agree with it or not, what stands ultimately. And so, yeah, I don't remember anybody yelling about Stacey Abrams failing to concede and then saying she won. You know, I, I also put Hillary Clinton in this basket. I understand that she made the concession call. I get that. But right. then what followed was months and months of fomenting this thought that Donald Trump was a illegitimate president. Those are her, her words, an illegitimate president. And sort of forwarded this narrative that he never would have been elected in the first place if it wasn't for the Russians, right? Which then kicked off Mueller and everything else where we dealt with for four years. And in the end, it turned out like it was their own dossier that was never verified in the first place. It was used to conduct this entire investigation in, in, into the Trump campaign. Like you can have a lot of critiques for Donald Trump and his administration. That's not one of them. Right. That's not no. one of them. But it, but it stems from exactly the issue that you just raised, a failure to internalize the fact that you're not president or you're right. not a senator or a governor or what have you. And it's no, it is, is. It's a character. Is something that, this is something that proudly for years and I, I didn't go far enough. I should have gone full deep state. I was <laughs> I was looking at the Mueller stuff and I was just like, I don't I don't think this is what you guys think it is. Right. I don't. I just don't buy it. I don't think we're going to get there. So the, sort of the the healthy skepticism that should have been brought to the table over all of this got tossed out the window because a lot of people following Hillary Clinton and wanting to just ignore that this person they didn't want to become president had become president, partly because they had put him on TV for like a gajillion hours. Right. Uh, they're like, they're like, well, can't we just unpresident him? And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. You have to impeach and <laughs> convict him or you can beat him in an election. So I argued, like, I don't I don't think this is where we're headed, guys, and we should, you know, wait for the, the facts and things. And the facts end up being that this is a Clinton-funded dossier right. that, had, that had actual Russian disinformation in it. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's the exact opposite of what we were told. And I'm glad you bring Hillary Clinton up because she's got a great clip out today. Again, part of the closing argument, I feel, I feel like everyone's really coming together yeah, with nice. relevant info for us and for voters. Here's Hillary just giving a given a statement, I guess, in front of like a blue screen in her house. Here she is. <laughs> I know we're all focused on the 2022 midterm elections, and they are incredibly important. But we also have to look ahead because you know what? Our opponents certainly are. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it the right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule 
on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. Just think, if that happens, the 2024 presidential election could be decided not by the popular vote or even by the anachronistic electoral college, but by state legislatures, many of them Republican controlled. There you go. There you go. She's, I think that's a, that's a, is that a preemptive denial? This lady, this lady. First of all, just a ball of charm as usual. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I thought the damnedest thing was a few months ago when she was teaching a master class. Did you see that? You know, they have those master classes. They advertise on Instagram all the time. And it's like you sign up and you have some expert tell you about how to cook or right. like, you know, how to do all kinds of things. And then like she had one on leadership. <laughs> and I was, I was like, holy shit. Hillary Clinton <laughs> has a master class on leadership that now I, I've seen it all. One of one of my favorite cultural moments was the the past couple of months when I've been assaulted every time my Apple TV comes on with a picture <laughs> of Chelsea and her looking over their shoulders from a like cute little vintage convertible. <laughs> because of course, the media the media and the culture at large has deemed these two people really compelling TV yes. presences that mm-hmm. I need to see travel about the country and meet the little people. And I haven't I have not yet tuned in to gutsy. Um, yeah. Well, MK, you, you leave one important part out, which is the fact that you are you are a woman, and as a woman, they speak for you. They do, right? They I mean, do. yeah. that's just that's just what's happening here. They they they've articulated your values and everything else, and so you know, let's just put them on, and they can they can deal with fifty one percent of the electorate, and and we'll go from there. <laughs> but here's Hillary, like doing the same, if if not worse behavior than many on the right setting the table for I, I like the use of the term literally like let's let's make it a little less millennial hun <laughs> literally steal the election at least she used it properly i guess and then the i do i do want to note that the production quality is just mwah, chef's kiss there's like people yeah. walking around behind the camera you can see their shadows <laughs> <laughs> yeah no they left a little something on the table when in terms of, in terms of trying to pre- i don't think the master class people were in there actually buffing that one out But, you know, if you notice from the left writ large, they're beginning to spin the loss. Right. And that's part of it. This is. But but there's also, you know, the discussion from MSNBC crowd about, you know, not only is it the end of democracy, but like, do is it time to invite the U.N. in to monitor American elections? Right. Whenever whenever they lose, it's just like, okay, wait, hold on. Raft of think pieces. (laughs) This was ill-conceived from the beginning. The whole country, the whole Supreme Court, the whole Electoral College, whatever it is that serves at that moment, time to rethink in a very serious intellectual way, not just because we lost and we swear. Yeah, it's not just that. It's not just that. But I mean, look, if you look back to 2016, they literally broke the internet because of Hillary Clinton, right? There was this, this, you know, in the middle of all the justification of the Russians and the, the meddling and they, of course, elected Donald Trump, like what began to happen is that they shifted blame then to social media, right? The, the social media and the way that their algorithms work, well, that must be a problem or, you know, advertising at all, right? You saw platforms like Twitter ban political advertising. 
I can't even imagine there's anything more un-American than just banning a form of speech, but they did it, right? And then like the Facebooks of the world and everybody else had to do their own sort of formulation of how like you couldn't advertise to certain segments at certain times. And, and they're basically like running the infrastructure of an election against themselves because, you know, Hillary Clinton lost, which is amazing to me that we've now, we've landed, you know, however many years later in a situation where it's broken. There's now a unified democratic government and like nobody has anything to say about that. Right. Right. Nobody. I mean, it's like it never happened. Who did this? <laughs> How did this happen? Right. And yes. now, they're, now their only complaint is that occasionally a conservative voice is not banned on one of the platforms and they're going to have to get to the bottom of that. That's what the that's what the Musk ire is about. The Elon Musk ire is with Twitter is does not, does not seem to come from any fear that he would ban people. It's just that he would not ban the right things. That's right. It's very right. telling. So let's get to actual races for house races. What do you what are you looking at on election night? Our our audience is well informed, but maybe not drilled down on all the various districts. Sure. Well, look, I think it's important to remember when you think about historically wave elections, you think about 30, 40, 50 seat pickups, these massive swings in the House of Representatives. But what's not irrelevant here is where you start, right? And it's basically a divided house. And if you were to win, if Republicans were to win every single district that Donald Trump carried in 2020, they would still have only have 209 seats right? They would still be in a minority right. in the House. So they have to cut pretty deeply into Democrat-held and Biden-won districts. If you go to like plus five, you still only get to like a 20-seat pickup. That's five right. points that voted for, for Biden. If you want every one of them, you still only get to 20. If you go to like 10, I think it's like seven, you can get to like 26, 27 seats you have to win everything in 10 plus in order to get to 30. So it's, I think it's important to take in context the seismic shift that it would require just to get to 20, right? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very important point that a lot of people miss is that even though this could be a very big and good year for Republicans because of some overperformance, frankly, in other years, there's less ground that they can, there's less low-hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah. That it, it's entirely right. And they're scattered all over the country. Of course, there was redistricting this year. So some of the districts are a little bit different. People are running in different places. One of the interesting things that's happening to me, or, or, to me anyway, that, that I think is worth checking in on is New York, which is typically mm -hmm. not the place that you go to, to, to think about Republican pickups, but like the, the DCCC, the campaign arm of House Democrats, the chairman himself is in deep shit. In his own election, right? And I after, think- After many machinations to make it less deep for him, oh. he's still in trouble. And they're all, and they're now they're all angry because he's, he's allocating DST triple C money to his own race, right? <laughs> to try to bail himself out. It's uh, good to be king. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but I mean, I think that that, if you were to just box up the house and say, what is most likely to happen- and what would you want from my perspective to happen? I think most likely they'll get to 20. And I think that's a huge okay. wave that gets into 20. I think you can get to 22, mm -hmm. 24 on a, on a really good day. If you get above that, it's better than any, anybody, I think, projects. But the real chef's kiss, the cherry on top for me 
would be if the guy, the chairman of the whole operation went down in the process, because that, that would be a story worth telling. Yeah. Well, as I had Josh Crosshar talk to him this week, and he was pointing out that may indeed happen, although we'll see how long it will take New York to count those votes before we know it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the other problem, right? I mean, I, I think we're probably going to run into a number of states that still have growing pains with the changes that they made in a COVID environment. New York is just traditionally bad no matter what, right? They can't figure it out no matter what. It doesn't matter if it's COVID rules or non-COVID rules or whatever. They just suck. It's like Palm Beach in, in Florida, Broward County, Florida, right? right? No matter what happens in the country, Broward County is going to have a problem. Guaranteed. Right. So, so there is some think, of that. Do you think that this, this little surge for Lee Zeldin, who's running against Kathy Hochul, who's the Democratic governor of New York, again, Democrats have ignored the issue of crime, which in New York, come, amazing. come on, like how, how did you miss this? They've ignored the issue. Uh, inflation ignored the issue to a great extent. And it's sort of catching up with there. There's enough panic that there was a New York Times story this week about them panicking, which is a pretty <laughs> large amount of panic yeah. in New York. Is that the white whale? It feels a little white whaley to me. Yeah. I mean, look, it's definitely a stretch. There's no question about that. But I don't think it's a, a race that's out of the realm of possibilities for the reason that you mentioned. I mean, anytime you have unified control of government and an acute mm -hmm. anger about what that control has impact and how that in, it has impacted your life, you run the risk of, of liberal Democrats even crossing the aisle and voting for change, right? And I think if ever there was a state, you know, other than California, which can never figure itself out, but if ever there was a state that has the capacity to, to vote outside of its ideological demographic, it's New York right now. I mean, that go to Manhattan. It's a very different place than it was five years ago, right? And it's hard to argue that you don't want to go in a different direction. Well, and I have a similar feeling this year as I did last year watching the Yunkin race and to a lesser extent, the New Jersey governor's race. But those are, you know, the, our, our first, first indication of where we're headed. Right. And I just thought the disconnect between what media media's take on a Yunkin race was and what I was hearing yeah. from regular people and not just conservatives because I mean, I live in Northern Virginia. There's not yeah. that many of us. So not just conservatives, but just normie moms whose kids had been out of school for a year, more, yeah. more than a year. And I just thought, I, I kept second guessing myself because I was like, am I crazy? Because I am reading this <laughs> very differently than everyone else. And it turned out, no, I was correct. I have a similar feeling about this election that the disconnect up until these two weeks has been so great that I'm like, am I totally wrong about this? The fundamentals really feel bad for them. They really feel bad. Right. And I think the only thing that can save them in a couple of different places is is the fact that you've got some Republican candidates that may not perform up to like a generic Republican on that ballot. Right. If you I right. think it look, whatever a generic Republican is. Right. Like it's probably a 50 year old white guy, which, by the way, we no longer recruit. I don't know if you've seen the House recruit. I know. Yes. I it's mean, a little different these days. Holy smokes, is it awesome. I mean, the, the recruiting class of, of 2020 was entirely women and people of color that, that won, right? And all of a sudden, all of these recruits look like their district. They are from their district. They experience the same things as the people in their district do. Right. And so, you know, 
in terms of the house, I, I mean, that's, that's why I'm really bullish on this. I think, I think there's a lot of really, really good candidates. I think we, we have had a situation where I, there are a couple of different places where Here's you wonder dash. whether or not you can get to generic Republican status. Okay. And that's kind of what remains to be seen because it's bit Republicans before, right? Remember Todd Aiken, you know, Richard Murdoch in Indiana, the witch, Christine O'Donnell in Delaware. We've done it before. Uh, excuse me, not a witch. Not, not a, a witch. witch. Well, she's not, she claimed she fact, was not a witch. Fact I check. I feel like there was ample <laughs> evidence to suggest otherwise, but your point is well taken. <laughs> so, you know, look, that has been in good years, that has been an Achilles heel of Republicans. They'd figured it out for about 10 years. There was some backsliding lately, but by and large, I feel like the vast majority of candidates are doing their job exactly at the right time. Yep. Do you see any place where a Democrat in a major race is overperforming their expectations, where they're running something smart, where they wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise expect it? Yeah, look, I mean, Ryan in Ohio is running a better race than anticipated. That's a Trump plus eight state, right? Yeah. You would think at a midterm with the wind at your back that that would be a win going away. I mean, if you remember back in 2016, I guess, when Rob Portman was running for reelection, that race was off the map in July, right? Yeah. Like nobody even took a look at it. There was certainly no outside spending. Now there's, you know, 30 plus million dollars of Republican money that's invested in that race. I think J.D. Vance wins and I think he wins with a, you know, with a margin. But that's a lot of investment that, that in all likelihood took dollars out of places like New Hampshire, Arizona, Colorado and Washington State where you know, again, those are all close races too. Do you have a Senate call? What do you think will happen? Yeah, I think, I think Republicans are going to get the majority. I think it runs through Pennsylvania and Nevada. I think Oz, I've never seen a candidate of either side have a 12 point lead, lose it in six weeks and then bounce back. Yeah. Right. Usually that trend line is a steep fall that is really impossible to, to reverse. So the idea that he could go from 12 up to tied three weeks before the election and then Fetterman somehow, although unable to speak and communicate with his voters, could somehow turn that around right. and, and win that race. I like our chances there, but I think that the whole Senate sort of hinges on Pennsylvania. The Fetterman thing is yet another, yet another issue that <laughs> voters are told by Democrats just doesn't exist or shouldn't exist and we should shut up about it. And it's like, well, I don't know. It's the job description, man. Like, this is the thing. And people are allowed. And also, you've hidden the ball for months. Well, that was the problem, right? It wasn't until we figured out that he had to read all of his interviews that something was amiss, you know? Yeah. And yeah. But we didn't figure it out by disclosure. We figured it out because, you know, there was one reporter that had some integrity that had to say, like... Because there was an like, ableist reporter. Josh. An ab oh, reporter. She was very ableist. Very ableist. She went out there and she did the, she did the wrong moral thing <laughs> by asking this man questions who's running for Senate. I wish him a great recovery. I just wish it for him outside the Senate. I agree with you. Anyway, on that. Nevada. <laughs> so, so Nevada is the pickup opportunity that Republicans have that is currently positioned the best on the ballot. You've had Laxalt with a lead over Catherine Cortez Masto, the incumbent Senator for now six weeks. It's been a small lead, you know, two, three points, but it's been very durable and very consistent. And, and there has been millions. I mean, Democrats have probably had a four or five to one advantage on air throughout, right? So if you're just doing the calculation as, as an operative and you haven't been able to move those numbers 
despite significant spending advantages, the likelihood of you doing that in the last two weeks against your environment is pretty low. So I, I think I think that is a race that, although it will be very close, I really like our chances. And then, you know, Georgia's on the other side. I'll tell you, the, the one thing I like the most, you mentioned the debate, and I think Herschel Walker did terrific in that debate. And certainly they were expecting him to disqualify himself, right? Which he, he didn't mm-hmm. do. But what I really like about Georgia is that Governor Kemp is on the top of that ticket. And he is blowing yes. the doors off Stacey Abrams. I don't, I don't know if she's going to recognize it this time around or not, yeah. but she's not going to win. And by the way, by the way, it speaks to the power of of being consistent in taking it to election deniers because Kemp is happy to do it to both sides. And yeah. it turns out that works out electorally for you. It turns out people actually have some appreciation. I mean, he won his primary with what, 70 some odd percent of the vote and then rolled into the general election and has just been annihilating Stacey Abrams at every turn. And nobody's been able to show me a Venn diagram of the Georgia electorate that has 10% overlap of Warnock and Kemp, right? right? I can see five, I can see six, but I, I think he's going to win with a big margin here. And I, I think that's really good news for Herschel Walker. Yeah. By the way, I have to do my normal disclosure, which is that I cannot fairly adjudicate a Herschel Walker race because I am a University of Georgia graduate. Ah. And as far as we are, I could I could reach right here and grab my signed 1980 National Championship <laughs> Coke bottle, which I feel like is an important fact for everyone to know when I am analyzing this race. So there, there is no conflict there. That you feel the same way as the people of Georgia. <laughs> okay, that, I can't that, do it, guys. <laughs> when it. he was getting in the race, I was like, I don't, I can't talk about this. I can't talk about this, guys. <laughs> so you know that's another pickup opportunity. Clearly, New Hampshire and Arizona are both close. You know, we'll see if the wave arrives or not. Colorado is sort of an interesting one because you've got Michael Bennett, who is the softest senator I've ever seen. I mean, this guy is like a Pillsbury doughboy, unremarkable in every possible way. And he's really getting a tough campaign run against him by a guy named Joe O'Day out there. Uh, the question is, how blue is Colorado, right? Is, is, it, is it deep blue? Because if it's deep blue, he's not going to get there. But if it has some of that, you know, old school Ben Nighthorse Campbell days Colorado to it, you know, there's a chance there. And then the other one's Tiffany Smiley in Washington State, which is a, you know, really interesting contrast. I mean, look, Patty Murray's been around a long time. Just to be talking about, well, just to be talking about a Senate race in Washington and House races in Oregon is like blowing my mind. That's that's sort of the the state of the the environment for Democrats. That's the state of the environment for Democrats. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it, it's not good. <laughs> It's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Well, I look I look forward to the continuing freak out. We'll see where the because I think the table is set as far as what voters care about. The table is set as far as Democrats are suddenly re- realizing they ignored that part of the equation, and it's going to be an interesting two weeks, no matter where we end up. So I I know you're busy, as as the crew says on the Ruthless Pod, the the red wave doesn't happen we are doing it right yeah, it's not something so you're happening. out there on it's the something trail that is something that we're doing and uh <laughs> yeah i've been traveling around trying to do my very best do my part to to make sure that this happens it's a it's a generational opportunity to reset the decks and we certainly need it because the country is going in the wrong direction and that is something i guess 70 percent of us agree on regardless of how we're voting yeah. See, we come together sometimes. <laughs> People agree on wrong direction, wrong direction in the media's trash. Those are like the two things. That's it. 
I feel I can get on board, right? I mean, that's that's fine. That's fine. All right. Well, Josh, Josh Holmes, thank you so much for being here. Like I said, listen to the Ruthless Podcast if you do not already. Tell us anywhere else we can find you, Josh. Yeah, we're we're we have a YouTube page too, but but anywhere you get your downloads, whether it's you know, Apple, Spotify, what you name it, we're on every platform. So do that. And you gotta come back soon. We'll do a post-election thing where we'll have a maybe a couple of cocktails and make the oh. make the uh, the analysis worthwhile. Happy to do it. I can explain why the moms are angry. When yes. everybody's surprised by it, doesn't I thought Hillary and Chelsea were going to do that for us? Oh yeah. no, on Gutsy next episode of Gutsy. All right, <laughs> you're the best. Right, Thank Josh, you take, for having me. Yeah, take care out there on the trail. We'll see you soon. Bye.